want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. We've come to the, essentially to the end of this section of Scripture, Romans 9 through 11. Many have treated it as a parenthesis when in fact it is the application of the doctrine of justification. They treat it as a parenthesis as though it has nothing to do with the first part or the second part when it really is the amplification of what, in fact, God wants to do in the world because He has sent Jesus. And so let's read it and then we'll talk a little bit about what it means to come to the end of this section and what God has to say to us through it. Romans 11, beginning in verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the Gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by mercy, the mercy shown to you, they may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. Well, here you have like I said, the summary of his uh, argument from chapter 9, 10, and 11. And what, what it is in a word is simply a call for people to be humble toward those who are different from them. A call to be humble with regard to race and ethnicity in particular. I didn't think that this was that big of an issue for me. I didn't think that uh, I was racist. Didn't think of myself that way anyway. I didn't think of uh, my world as simply white, simply Gentile, but it is. As I reflect on my life, it becomes a little more obvious than it might have uh, otherwise been. I I spent a year of my life when I was a little boy in Montgomery, Alabama in the 1960s. And place that in history, right? It's part of the history books. Alabama in the 60s. I didn't go to school with any little black boys. Didn't even think about it. Spent the rest of my growing up 
in Montana. Uh, the racial issues there were really Norwegians. There were some German-speaking Hutterites nearby, and there was an Indian reservation or two that I knew about. But for the most part, all of those problems were someone else's, you know. And what I didn't realize is that despite our country's history, the interest of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to dissolve ethnic and racial barriers. Belief in the gospel of Jesus eradicates those humanly erected walls that separate people. And it is a necessary result of believing the Gospel that you would not be racist. This is what the center of Romans is all about. The first part of Romans is about the, the, the need for and the beauty of justification by faith. That God has in fact saved us by His Son. That our sins are forgiven. That we're reconciled to God. That there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It simply does not get any better than that. But, falling quickly on the heels of all of those beautiful statements of salvation is this. There is no place for racism or ethnocentrism in the Gospel of Jesus. Just in case you think, golly, why, why does Pastor Scott have a burr under his saddle about this today? Of all days, I mean, we're getting close to Christmas. Why start you know, fussing about this? I want you to see that this is what he has been setting up all along. All along throughout Romans, we have been coming to the point to say that the things that divide you have no place because of the Gospel of Jesus. So look here. The first place in 9-11 through that he begins to let us know that this is an issue is in verse 6 of chapter 9 when he says, it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Now why would we even think the Word of God had failed? For ethnic reasons. Because it was thought that the... Um, promises of God, that the Word of God was exclusively the privilege of Israel. That a certain nation, a nationality, an ethnic group had sole possession of the Word of God. That they, in fact, would be blessed because God had spoken to them. But, all throughout Romans one through eight, he'd been saying, that's not how it goes. It goes through this Jewish Messiah to the world. 
But if it goes to the world and not to the Jews, has the word of God failed? That's his question. I mean, if the promise was in fact to Israel and now it's to everyone, did God change his mind? Did God decide I don't need to keep that particular one? What did God do? And he says here, no, it's not as though the word of God failed. Because not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not, not because they have uh, descended genetically from Israel or because they're part of the nation or the ethnic group of Israel. That's not what makes them part of the promise. So not all Israel belong to Israel. Notice how he uses the word in a couple different ways right there, which is challenging. But that will be important later when we get to the end. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. God has done something different to keep His promise. He has, he has selected a remnant. He has, he has elected a remnant. So that this remnant then belongs to God. And through that remnant, God keeps His promise. So some of Israel received the promise. Word of God's not failed. The next thing he says, in, um, well, that's, that's the setup in chapter, um, in chapter 9. It, sets, it, it comes off of the statement of the Gospel in the very beginning of the book. So, it's not just starting in chapter 9, it's starting in chapter 1, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel of the good news that Jesus Christ has come, lived, died, buried, rose again for sinners to reconcile them to God. I'm not ashamed of that. Because it is the very power of God for salvation with ethnic implications. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So from the very beginning, he recognizes this is going to raise issues. In chapter 3, chapter 3 contains the, the, the beautiful statement of the good news that we read at the beginning of the service that uh, God has given Jesus to satisfy His wrath or to be a propitiation so that we might be reconciled to God and redeemed because we believe in Jesus. And it contains sort of what I would consider the heart of the Gospel in chapter 3. It is bracketed in verse 9 and then again in verse 29 by this ethnic concern. It's not foreign to the Gospel. It's connected to the Gospel. What then? Are Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Both have the same problem. And then in verse 29... Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God will justify the circumcised or the Jews by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. The rules are the same for everyone. Regardless of your background, your nationality, or your history. But the point is, that the way of salvation is the same for everyone. And the very fact 
that it's the same for everyone levels the playing field and raises issues with people who believe that in fact the playing field was not level to begin with. In other words, it raises racial and ethnic issues. And so then again, back to chapter uh, 10, we see this again. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. Not more riches to one ethnic group than the other. Riches on all. How? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And if you call on the name of the Lord, whoever believes, uh, whoever calls on the name of the Lord and believes in his heart that God has raised him from the dead will be saved. He goes out of his way in Romans 10 to say there's a level playing field. And when he does, it raises ethnic, racial tension. Then again in chapter 11, I ask, has God rejected His people, the Jews? By no means. God has not rejected His people. So, nobody gets in on account of their uh, ethnic background. No one is rejected on account of their ethnic background. Everyone is included or excluded the same way. And again, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, their trust, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. In other words, there are um, both Gentiles and Jews that are uh, brought in by grace through faith in the same way. And he's saying there is always this tension. And this happens all the way through. It happens all the way through the New Testament. Every church struggles with this. Whether they think they struggle with it or not. I mean, the beauty of... I mean, one of the most beautiful statements of the Gospel anywhere in the New Testament is in Ephesians chapter 2. Where it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. It is, um, it is not of yourselves... It's the gift of God, not from works, so that no one can boast. Then he says, for God has uh, dissolved the wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles. He has made of the two one new man. Through the blood of Jesus, He has taken away their hostility for one another. So when the Gospel comes, so does racial reconciliation. I don't necessarily expect people who do not believe in the Gospel of Jesus to be reconciled racially, but I do expect that as a result of believing the Gospel of Jesus, that then people will embrace those of other nationalities and languages and ethnic groups. And that's what he's setting up throughout 
the, um, the book of Romans so that when he gets to our text here, he starts off with the obvious statement. Lest you're wise in your own eyes. Lest you think yourself so smart or so good or so above other people. The whole point of the Gospel is that you won't be in that posture anymore. So all that He said prior to this, He said so that you won't be wise in your own eyes. There is a humbling effect. Both personally and corporately to the Gospel. For us to say, I believe in Jesus, is to say, I am therefore less than. I am not trusting in myself any longer. My own goodness is not sufficient. So I'm no longer wise in my own sight. That's, that's his point. That's the implication of the Gospel. And so he says, let you be wise in your own eyes. I want you to understand this mystery. This mystery. He's going to explain the mystery in just a moment. But I just want to suggest to you that it shouldn't be that mysterious that God has embraced both Jews and Gentiles. That the Gospel is a power of God's salvation for the Jews first and also for the Gentiles. That God's embrace is a worldwide embrace. That's, that's the mystery that people could not get their heads around. And I'm just going to say it shouldn't have been that mysterious. Because from the beginning, God said it was so. The very first promise, really, it's not the first promise, but the, the very first promise to Abraham the one that, that we go back to as the people of God, says, I will bless you and make your name great and make of you a great nation so that all of the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. God's intent from the beginning was to bless the nations. shouldn't be that mysterious. We're here at Advent anticipating the arrival, right, of the Messiah. This One who would reconcile us to God and reconcile Jews and Gentiles. And it should not be a surprise to us. It should not be so mysterious. Because if you open your New Testament to the very first page, you see the genealogy of Jesus. The Jewish genealogy of Jesus that highlights Gentile women in the line of Jesus. And you go a couple of paragraphs later, and the very first people to hail the arrival of the Jewish Messiah were Gentile court magicians. The Magi, the wise men. Matthew presents to us Jesus as King over Jews and Gentiles. And right on the, at the very first of the good news over the Gospel of Matthew, 
we find the tension there or the pressure that this is a Jew and a Gentile Messiah. Shouldn't be as mysterious as it has been, but they perceived it to be an ethnic promise that their national identity was tied up in belonging to God. When in fact, then, Paul says, this is how it works. This is the mystery. First part of the mystery is that a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Now what he's doing is he is reviewing or explaining his uh, illustration from the preceding verses. So if you go back, uh, I forget where it starts, in verse 17 or somewhere, uh, maybe not even that far back. He gave an illustration of how God's doing this. And he said, it's like an olive tree where the roots are blessed and they're sunk deep in the promise of God. They represent the patriarchs or the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from those promises grow this tree. And what happened to that tree is some of those branches were hardened. Some of those branches of ethnic Israel were cut off because of their unbelief and their disobedience or their rebellion. That's the first part of the mystery. That that would happen. That God would keep His promise to Israel through this remnant maybe up here at the top of this olive tree. Just these few branches. But through that, God is keeping His promise from the very beginning. That's part of His explanation of the olive tree. But He says a partial hardening. Now, some of the way we would normally read that probably is we say, well, some were hardened and some weren't hardened. Okay, that's fair because some are a remnant and some were cut off. That's fair. Another way of looking at that. And this is the way that you would say this in um, the original language, is you would use that same word for a temporary hardening. Or a part of the time they were hardened, you might say. Or so this partial or temporary hardening of Israel has enabled then the Gentiles to be grafted in. So he's still explaining this uh, olive tree. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And what he has in mind here is that the Gentiles respond to the Gospel of Jesus by faith and they are grafted in. They are fully grafted in and the full number of them are grafted in. As many as God intends are included in this promise. He's not looking to say there is a certain number like 999,432. I can't even complete the number, right? There's no like made up number where it gets complete. It's just until these Gentiles have the opportunity to come in, this partial hardenings happen on Israel until the, the fullness, these Gentiles can fully come in. And so he, he's explaining this tree, right? Where they're cut off, now these others are in, and then he says, in this same way. So what I'm doing is explaining, he's saying, how Israel gets in back into the promise. 
So in this same way, all Israel will be saved. Which is exactly what we saw in the olive tree example. Where these cut off branches for their rebellion and their disobedience, when they repent, they can be grafted back in. Which is exactly what he's talking about here. All of those who repent in Israel will be saved. And so he's essentially expounding what he has been saying all along. That, that the rem, God keeps His promise here through the remnant. The promise has not failed. The, Israel has not fallen permanently. They've not stumbled so they've fallen permanently. They're going to be grafted back in. All Israel will be saved. And God's intent is to make this new olive tree to be the people of God with their roots sunk deep in the, promise, the promises of God made up then of a remnant of Gentiles and then of repentant Israel. I think this fits best with Romans 9-11, through with what He is telling us all the way through here. That God's intent was to make for Himself a people while keeping His promises to Israel so that the world would be blessed through those patriarchal promises to Abraham and everybody included on the same terms. For by grace are you saved through faith. Right? That all who believe in the name of the Lord shall be saved. So all on the same terms, everyone comes to faith in the Messiah. And God creates His people. Now, there are, there are people who see this differently. I'm just going to say. There are people who see this, all Israel will be saved, as something that will happen in the future to ethnic or national Israel. That somehow there will be in the end times when there is a final number of Gentiles saved, that then Israel will nationally or ethnically return to God. Some even think that that return uh, may not even involve Jesus. Some would say it does. All that to say, I don't think that that fits with Romans 9-11 through as clearly or as simply as saying that what God is doing is making for Himself this olive tree. And the mystery is this. Olive branches are cut out. A remnant remains. Gentiles are grafted in. Then those... Uh, rebellious branches are grafted back in when they repent and then the tree is full. That seems to me what he's explaining. And that his interest is not in talking about a second coming of Jesus or a final thing, but rather this first coming of Jesus, what God was doing when the Deliverer came from Zion. When what we just read about the Advent Happen that that was what God was doing. That there isn't intended now that there is some special ethnic division for Israel even in the future. 
But their entry into the people of God now is by, by faith in the Messiah. That disobedience on the part of Jews and Gentiles keeps them out. And that the rules are the same for both. Because of this Deliverer named Jesus. And when He does, He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. His intent is to save is for the Gospel to be the power of God for salvation to the Jew first, banishing ungodliness from Jacob, and to the Gentile. And this will be My covenant with them when I take away their sins. Okay, God's promise is to take away sin. God's promise most clearly stated in the New Covenant executed in the blood of Jesus. So that in the Last Supper, Jesus said, this is the New Covenant in My blood. What He meant is, it is by My blood that your sins are forgiven. And so, I think what Paul is doing is centralizing Jesus here as the one in whom the promises to the patriarchs find their fulfillment and through whom this entire tree is grown. And so, I think that's what God is doing. And when that is what God is doing through Jesus and through what we consider the Gospel of His life, death, burial, resurrection, then that undermines racial and ethnic privilege and racial and ethnic prejudice. And so he goes over it one more time here. As regards to the Gospel. He's speaking to Gentiles, by the way. If if I hadn't said that yet. He's speaking to Gentiles. As regards to the Gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies of God for your sake. So, the reason they were cut off is so you could be grafted in. Okay, just another round of review, right? But as regards to election, so because they were part of the tree in the beginning, before they were cut off, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers, and they can be grafted back in. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So, God's intent is not to change the way people get saved. It's not to to switch the rules from the Old Testament to the New or from Jews to Gentiles, but rather to say the Jews, the promise to the Jews, the promise to Abraham, more, more accurately, is good because the gifts and calling of God to the descendants of Abraham, that is irrevocable. God intends to make that good. So the Word of God has not failed. There's not injustice with God. All the questions that we've sifted through in these last three chapters, they all come down to this. God is keeping His promise to Abraham and to Israel through the remnant, including the Gentiles in the promise, and then grafting back Israel so that God's promise and His Word is true and people come to faith in Jesus all the same way, without privilege and without prejudice.
And so then the end of the argument, the very, very end, is something we've seen time and time again. Speaking to the Gentiles, he says, just as you were at one time disobedient to God. Now you've received mercy. What a glorious statement. I was disobedient and I received mercy. But why? Because in this mysterious plan of God, they, the Jews, were disobedient. And then, they too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they will receive mercy. So the rules remain the same. You are included in the blessing of God, the promise to Abraham, simply by mercy. Not by works, not by ethnic identity, not by nationality, not by privilege, only by mercy. It's exactly what we saw in the, in the very beginning. All of Romans 1 is saying this same thing. People are disobedient. Romans 2, Romans 3, they all say, there is none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They're all that way. And in fact, that's his, that's his summary here in verse 32. Uh, in verse 32, God has consigned all to disobedience. Everyone is stuck in the same problem, unable to rescue themselves. That's by God's design. So that God can accept and embrace Jews in the same way He embraces Gentiles. So that He can include you and me by grace through faith. He can show mercy on all. I mean, think about it. How great is it that no one has an advantage? That I'm not looking over the fence saying, oh, I wish I had what they have. That I'm also not looking over the fence and saying, they're awful. I don't have to look over the fence. I just have to say, God, thank You right here for mercy. Thank You right now that I don't receive what I deserve, but rather, I receive what I don't deserve. You see, and so God puts everyone in the same, gives everyone the same problem. Maybe the, the Jews articulated through the law. Maybe those who didn't have the law articulated through because of their conscience. They're all consigned to disobedience. So that the rules are the same for everyone. Everyone's entry into relationship with God is simply because of God's mercy and His sovereign rescue so that they then call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. That's what all of us are invited to do. If you've, not, if you've not called upon God for His mercy, this morning is an invitation to do that for sure. Because that is, that is the way, and it's only because of His mercy, that you have any hope of being reconciled to God. Which is great. 
Because you don't have to look over your shoulder and say, I wonder if I did good enough today. I wonder if my, I wonder if my efforts are enough or my religion is sincere enough or anything that depends on you. It has nothing to do with that. It all rests on the character and the mercy of God. And if you're like me, I'm really thankful that that's the case. Because any other way wouldn't be near as good. And it wouldn't be, and I wouldn't have access to it any other way. Let's, uh, let's pray and thank the Lord for His mercy. Oh, great God and Father, thank You so much that Your plan from the beginning was to include the nations in the blessing to Abraham. That we come this morning probably with all sorts of ethnic backgrounds and we can come confidently believing Your promise. We don't have to, we don't have to change who we are or who we were. We don't have to jump through hoops. We simply have to acknowledge that the only way we'll be right with You is if we surrender and let You show us mercy. And so God, I pray that every person in earshot here this morning, that they would that they would do that. That they would surrender and not try and up, uh, uphold their own goodness or righteousness or performance or religiousness, but rather they would embrace the mercy that comes so freely because of Jesus. And so we, as Your people now, Jews and Gentiles from all places and walks of life, we want to acknowledge Your mercy and praise You for it. In the name of Jesus, Amen.